Our Father, we thank you that life and death are under your control, that sickness and health, that poverty and wealth, that hunger and thirst and being full and satisfied, that every one of these things is under your authority and your control. We thank you that we do not live at the whim of blind fate. We thank you that Satan's power is bound. We thank you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And we thank you that you have commanded us that when we suffer and when we have trials and tribulations that we are to give thanks because we know that every trial and tribulation cometh down from above, falling down from the Father of the heavenly lights. And that by the power of your Spirit, you improve these sufferings to us, that souls are saved, that men and women and children repent, that the faith of elders is strengthened, that the service and compassion of deacons explodes, that little children learn not to take their mothers for granted. And Father, we with faith confess these truths in the eye of this uh, terrible blow. We accept it from your hand and we do pray that you will heal Rosemary. And we pray that as she suffers through the process, that whatever the consequences, we will confess our faith in the goodness of our Father in heaven. Our Father, we love you more than we love life. And we know that your scripture teaches us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now bring to the Merriman home faith in your providence. Give them a special unity and sweetness towards one another. And we pray that the message tomorrow might be one of joy and not of sorrow. We pray this because we know that you have said that you don't willingly afflict your children, but that in a time and in a place and in a new morning, you have a kindness that brings us relief and that your mercies are new each morning. Father, we pray for the others of us here who suffer, whether from our idolatry or from our weakness. We pray that you will mercifully show us the path that we should walk. We pray, Father, that we will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that we will not cling to this world or the things of this world. We pray that we will not worship your creation, but you who made all things. And Father, we also pray this morning for David and Terry Ann and their children and their family that you will give them great joy that they have been counted worthy of saying goodbye to this country and to all their loved ones and going to your people in Africa to strengthen them for eternity. Keep them safe as they travel this week. We thank you for their faithful witness in our midst. And we pray that it will be even more of a faithful witness in Zambia and that the Christians there will rejoice even more than we have. Father, for all the other prayer requests and praises, we, we place them in your hand knowing you care for us. And we pray this morning as we come to your word that this word today 
will pierce our hearts, that we will do the work of worship in such a way that we will go from this place committed to not neglect the assembling of ourselves together, to not neglect the work for which you made us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I have had some people ask uh, me, well, uh, I shouldn't say recently some people, recently one person, but over the years, many people, about our church's position on uh, the supernatural gifts. Now, you can label them different gifts depending upon your perspective, but um, I want to say this morning that following the service, immediately afterwards, uh, the elders and pastors, and Gene, this is a notice that we would like you to join us, Gene Taylor. We will be meeting with a couple of people to anoint them for healing and to pray, laying hands on them. And we encourage you, if there are things that you... Uh, want the ministry of the elders or the deacons for, that you will come and ask this. The Bible commands us that if any one of us is sick, that he should call for the elders. And we regularly do this a couple of times a month. Uh, if you see us going into the back room, usually that's what we're doing. And uh, we will this morning be doing it with Rosemary and another woman. And we encourage you to come to us and to ask for this ministry. Um, a second pastoral note. Would you open your Bibles up, please, to what we read as our scripture lesson, Isaiah 49. Had I been up here, uh, I would have made a comment about this, but since I wasn't the one reading, I didn't, but now I will. Um, and Isaiah 49, you remember the text that Rob read I want to make a comment because we just pass over these things and so much of Scripture seems to us to sort of be this sort of spiritual mantra, you know, it just goes on and on and it's all very spiritual and sometimes we get a glimpse of the meaning. Well, I don't want you just to have a glimpse of the meaning this morning. I want you to have your eyes burned into one truth from this text. This is one of the two or three best places to look in Scripture about what it is that's done in an abortion place. I won't call it a clinic because a clinic is for healing. And if you look at the text, you'll see in verse 1 it says, The Lord called me what? From the womb. Now you read that in English and you think it means that as the child came out of the womb, the Lord called the child. But that's not the original construction in Hebrew. Look down further. From the body of my mother. And then look down at verse 5. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. The construction in Greek, if you'll listen, what it would say in Greek is koilia. And if you listen, you'll know that koilia is the root of what? Coils. And if you've had any... Anatomy, or if you know anything about the body, you know that this is a description of guts, literally coils inside of us. And when the Bible refers to a child, and right here when it refers to Isaiah being called from his mother's womb, 
It's actually saying from the guts of my mother. And that's a very different thing than saying from uh, the womb because you can kind of make the womb think that, well, yes, as the child's born, he's called. But it's very clear that this is referring to a child that is inside the guts of his mother. And the other place in Scripture where it's so clear what's going on in abortion is in Luke where it talks about John the Baptist leaping for joy when he's in his mother's womb, at what? The presence of another baby in its mother's womb, namely Jesus. And so, anytime you hear discussions of abortion, be very, very precise as you think about it. Think biblically and think. Abortion is the taking of the lives of little ones like John the Baptist, like Jesus, like Isaiah, in their mother's wombs. Children who have been in their mother's womb set apart by God. Now, I say this to you because it's so easy for us to fall into sexual sin, number one. Number two, it is so easy for us as Americans to pay three, four, five hundred dollars and solve our problems. We're used to doing this. I have a CV joint going out on my car. It's cracking. It's, it's, and I pay four hundred dollars. It's taken care of. It's very enticing for us to deny that God is at work in the womb of a woman. Uh, You don't feel it. You don't see it. You don't hear it. But God has spoken and revealed to us the nature of this. So if you're a bit shocked to see us in our, uh, as some of you I'm sure are, to see right out there in the open in our prayer requests a prayer. Where is it? Uh, a continued life and soul concern that doctors who perform abortions at Planned Parenthood would stop killing babies. It's, it's, It's a bit of a shock to read that there. But this is what the godly always do. The godly say, let justice roll down. And justice is that these little ones are protected. Now, if you have had an abortion or been involved in having one, please understand, you're just normal in this church. We are, all of us, murderers, idolaters, adulterers, fornicators, thieves, greedy people. And so you fit. But you fit only if you're willing to confess that as a sin as everything else that we have done and I mentioned is a sin. What we don't want is for you to have a a conscience that is destroyed by lies. We want your conscience so active that it can never give in to the lies of uh, all the people that make money off sex and abortions in this country. Okay? We want your conscience formed by the Word of God. So this is an opportunity to have it formed by the Word of God. Meditate on this. Think of the Greek, koilia. Think of guts of mother. Think that God is at work inside a woman's womb. Now, that should be a glorious thing to women. I mean, you know... um, I could think of being jealous of that. And that's not patronizing. It's a glorious thing that God has given us the gift of life through the body of a woman and especially the life of our Redeemer, Jesus, who came from the womb of Mary. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Last week, uh, 
Gene Taylor, our missions chairman, and a man who's spent with his wife, Lois, many years, uh, his whole life, as a missionary to Japan. And David Wagner presented us a series of scriptures that they would like during David's commissioning service. David and Terry Ann and their children here will be leaving this Friday, I believe, to go over to Zambia. It's something that they've been working towards for three years or so, two, two years. And uh, this was one of the texts that David suggested, or Gene, I don't know which of you, but one or the other. And so let's read it together. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. This is God's word. Today in America, you wouldn't be shocked if I told you that our wealth and abundance and pride has made us a very selfish people. When we read the texts in the New Testament that warn about what the last days will be like, um, one of the things that it lists is it says that people in the last days will be ungrateful. And we see in our relationships with one another, we see especially in the breakdown of homes. That's probably the place that it's most visible to us. The terrible selfishness that permeates the relationships of, of men and women. Uh, the thought that a man and a woman would uh, put their emotional contentment above the needs of their children and cause their children to go for often for decades afterwards filled with guilt that somehow they had... Uh, they had caused their parents' marital breakup, which is what children always think. Adult, uh, small children just feel that they should have done something to keep their parents together, and they're somehow to blame. Well, we understand and we are uh, very aware of our selfishness. Uh, drive uh, with me in a car, and you'll see it. Um, Watch men, when there's a good game on the television set, you'll see it. But I want to speak to us this morning about a selfishness that's different than this selfishness that we are so aware of. It's a very different kind of selfishness. It's a selfishness that very few of us are aware of. And the selfishness I'm speaking of is not between man and man, but between man and God. It's the selfishness of those creatures who have been made by God to give him praise, but refuse to do so. It is the selfishness of those even who call themselves Christians, but who think of worship services primarily as times when they will have their felt needs met. And this is a selfishness that is so permeating the church today that... Uh, it is almost impossible to think about worship without thinking about the one statement that more than any other statement I have heard through the years, and I've been in good churches. So think of all the other churches, and the statement is 
that the worship service uplifted me. Uh, now, we all know that there are some times when uh, it would be good to say that. For instance, when we gathered to bury my brother this last year, and when it was all over, if I had said at the conclusion of that service of worship and testimony to the resurrection of the dead in Christ, that that service was uplifting to my sister-in-law Sandy and her children, that would have been a wonderful thing to say. But that's not primarily the time and place that we use this construction. Usually we use it when we're just coming one more time to worship. And when the worship is over, we tally it up. How about the hymns? How about the choruses? How about the prayers? How about the sermon? How about the end of the sermon? When I was done, did I feel uplifted? And we are so constantly asking this question that we're not even aware that we ask it. Now, you might say it in a different way. The most frequent way I hear it is this term, uplift. Uh, but however you say it, the question that I have for you this morning is a question that uh, I heard uh, my, said by one of the presidents about our country, John F. Kennedy, when he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but rather ask what you can do for your country. And this is a good construction for us to use to approach the concept of selfishness in worship. In the church, too often Christians are found asking not what their worship has done for God and for his glory, but rather what God's worship has done for them and their emotional well-being and felt needs. And the clearest expression of this failure to think about church and worship properly is this phrase, as I said, our worship experience. Too often, sad to say, this phrase is heard from the mouths of pastors and other worship leaders who ought to know better. Our worship experience. If this is the goal of worship, that we get a specially pious rush, then why isn't the book of Revelation filled with descriptions of the mood and emotions of the citizens of heaven. But it's a laughable thing. Can you imagine the Apostle John going on about how good everybody felt as they said, as they sang, worthy is the Lamb? And they were all singing, worthy is the Lamb. And all of them had that chill up and down their spine. You know that chill that you get sometimes when things are really neat? You're supposed to laugh at this point. I mean, it's a laughable thing to think of the book of Revelation having this running commentary about the emotions of the people of God as they fall before the Lamb of God. But why? Think of when Paul was caught up to the seventh heaven, he says. Ask yourself, why was the Apostle Paul forbidden to describe how he felt at the time? Why didn't he go on at great length describing his ecstatic experience? I mean, what's the point of having an ecstatic experience if you can't tell it to people? Describe it. We see this problem of our approach to worship seeking emotional rushes showing up in the way we talk about how we do or don't like a particular church or how we are happy or unhappy with a particular worship service. 
For instance, ooh, wasn't that a wonderful time? That solo was so uplifting, I just got goosebumps. Or I'm never going back to that church. No one ever talks to me and they act just like that because I'm older, I'm not as important as other people. Or about a new pastor. Um, If he doesn't watch out, there's not going to be many people coming to hear him anymore. You can't keep talking about sin. People don't come every Sunday to hear someone tell them they're sinners. They come to be encouraged and uplifted. Or think of a pastor who says, I'm going to activate my dossier. The people of this church just don't appreciate me. I'm going to look for a loving church. Or other conversations. For instance, this in a meeting of the elders or worship committee. Well, we don't want to forget that if people don't feel like they've had a good worship experience, we can always adjust the order of worship or the content so that people like it better and feel better about it. Or parents who say about their children, no, Johnny hasn't been coming to church because he doesn't want to. It isn't geared towards kids his age, and we can't force him to do something that doesn't mean anything to him, can we? Now, again, you should be laughing. But it's too real to laugh, isn't it? Imagine parents seeing their child walk out in front of a semi and saying, we can't make Johnny do something he doesn't want to do, can we? And yet that's infinitely less significant than parents who see a child made to give glory to God, refusing to train him and lead him into the act of worship. I mean, think about that. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Imagine parents who, knowing what their child was made for, would refuse to train their child to do His calling. One of the horrors of my life is to see how increasingly churches are absenting children from their corporate worship services. Not this church. But another church I served, when I came to the church from birth through sixth grade, had programs during corporate worship. And that is horrible. Why? Well, because it's just taken for granted that babies and sixth graders won't benefit from the service. And if they're not going to benefit from the service, what's the point of their being there? Now, there are a number of levels on which that's wrong. Um, One woman that I have a deep love for used to talk about how she loved to sit in worship services when she was pregnant to have her unborn child sitting under the preaching of the Word. Now, you think that's wacko. But then read about linguistics and how children pick up the language instinct. And ask yourself, you're sure it's wrong? What do you think a child learns in the womb? Nothing? Well, even if she was wrong in terms of thinking that the child would get theological, biblical content in the womb, 
What about the training of a child so that child knows that that mother's heart and body are at peace as she sits under the preaching of the word? What have you done with your children? What do you do with your roommates and your friends to teach them that the place of greatest joy is not when the next Star Wars movie is released, but when we gather together in the house of God? There's an Anglican chant on Treasuries of David, a CD that you can get at at any of the CD stores. And it's just putting to music scripture. And it goes, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Very, very simple. And I just love that little song. Because every single time that I come into worship, I'm strengthened and I'm glad. And especially when I'm not going to preach. And when I get to have another man laboring. And then this week, I had the joy of being in a hospital room with Jonathan Wagner and his two sons, Tim and David. And as I looked at the four of us in that room and I thought of the godly heritage in that home, I thought of the psalm where it talks about the great joy and blessing when brothers dwell together in unity. The oil running down through Aaron's beard. A picture of abundance in the ancient world. Worship is what we're made for. And to, to paraphrase a quote, Our hearts are never at peace and content as they are when we are doing that work for which God made us. I want to ask a few questions about worship. Number one, whose benefit is worship for our own or God's? Number two, is worship work or entertainment? Number three, if worship is work, should we expect it to be easy or hard work? And should we anticipate completing the task quickly or slowly? Number four, who should join in the work? Just those who understand what's going on are the entire family of God. Are all the people to assemble for the work of worship, both literate and illiterate, young and old, children and adults? You go to the Old Testament, it's interesting. At times you see the babies in their mother's arms as the word of God is read. And when we complete our corporate worship, number five, should we expect to leave our work behind feeling a certain way, for instance, lighthearted or jovial? Number six, what is to be the standard by which we judge our work? Is the congregation's mood an accurate way to judge the quality of its labor? And if it's so, which feelings or emotions indicate that God has been served properly? If those emotions that indicate that worship has truly happened are good cheer, happiness, and contentment, then how is worship different than a good night in the bars? Don't many men walk home from the tavern singing quietly to themselves, happy to be alive and blissfully ignorant of their problems? So what is worship? Well, our text begins by telling us that there was a church in Antioch. It's a church. It's a group of Christians gathered there in the city of Antioch. And we're told that this church had a number of prophets and teachers. 
And who served in these capacities? Well, five men named Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manan, and Saul, the man we know as Paul. So these were the church's prophets and teachers. Now, what do we know about these men? Well, they were particular men. Barnabas is also known as the son of encouragement. He's the one that was Paul's advocate when the church in Jerusalem didn't want to let him into their fellowship. He was also the man, you remember, that the Jerusalem church sent down sent back to Antioch when they first heard about the revival going on there among the Gentiles. And when he saw that the place was on fire spiritually, it was Saul, his protege at the time, that he called to come and join him there and help in the teaching and preaching. And Simeon, also called Niger, Niger means black, so Simeon, one of their teachers and preachers, was a black man. And some think that this was the same Simeon that carried the cross for Jesus on the road to Golgotha. Then Lucius of Cyrene, he may have been one of the original preachers who brought the gospel to Antioch, and then Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, so he was probably Herod's foster brother, and this would have been the Herod who tried Jesus and mocked him, and who also had John the Baptist beheaded at the request of his daughter. So these then were the leaders placed over the church there at Antioch. And the next thing we're told is what? While they, these five leaders and the rest of the church, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit gave them a message. Now, what does it mean when it says that they were worshiping the Lord? Well, Webster's defines worship as, quote, reverence offered a divine being or supernatural power or the act of expressing such reverence. Then Vine's Expository Dictionary says, as the word worship is used in Scripture, it refers to the direct acknowledgement to God of His character and perfections, His attributes. So then we can say that corporate worship is the public reverencing and honoring of God done by the people of God. So then the question is answered. Whose benefit is worship for our own or God's? Worship is for God's benefit, not ours. Now, this does not mean that we don't benefit, but it's a secondary purpose. It's not the primary purpose. Certainly, we do benefit by doing the thing that we as creatures have been made to do. If our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then as we glorify God as... John Piper has so clearly written, we will enjoy him forever. It will be for our good, not for our ill. It is God, though, that is the principal object of our worship, and it is done for his glory. And so when we gather to worship, not for worship, you hear how even moving it over into for worship changes the perspective on it? When we gather to worship, we are gathering to carry out God work, not God play and not God entertainment. Glorifying God is the work that God has called all of his creation to do. And we are only fulfilling our reason to exist when we're engaged in this task. Now, ask yourself the question, um, what does nature do? For what purpose did God create nature? Psalm 19, 1 and 2, the heavens are what? Telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hand. The firmament showeth his handiwork. 
And then in case we thought that this was just a momentary thing, it says, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So what does nature do? Nature glorifies her maker. This last week, I was greatly benefited to read a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called um, Wicked Men Useful in Their Destruction Only. And one of the things Edwards talks about is the fact that it's so perverse that man doesn't praise God and give him glory because all of nature does. And he goes on and talks about how creation is constantly praising God. And then he says, how perverse and twisted when the very creation that God has made to give him glory by serving man. The rains come that we'll eat. The animals die so that we can have meat. The wood grows so that we can have shelter. Even dogs bark so that we can be protected. He says, how perverse that all of creation is absolutely faithful. Even stones are stonish to the glory of God. And that man, whose principal utility is rational creature with a soul to give praise to his maker, refuses to use his extraordinary gifts for the one thing that he excels all of creation in. Do you understand that? And all of a sudden, if you understand it, that if nature does precisely what it's called to do all the time, And the one thing we excel all of nature in is the ability that we can rationally and spiritually praise God. That we refuse to do it. And instead, we use your voice, Dan, only as an idol. And that the principal utility of the musical instruments that are played by so many of you here, how many of you play a musical instrument? Raise your hand. The principal use of that and the principal desire that many of you had in learning to use the instrument was idolatry. Now you say, oh, I didn't, I wasn't. And I say, well, what do you think rock and roll is? You say, well, no, it was classical music for me. I say, okay, what do you think opera is? You say, oh, it's not all that bad. Bob's going to spit at me if I don't watch it. (laughs) But you have to understand that beautiful things seduce us. And what do they seduce us away from? From God. Anytime you play an instrument and you care more to play that instrument to the glory and contentment of man than to the glory of God, it has become an idol. Because an idol is when the creature replaces the creator in our commitment. That's idolatry. I think that one of the great uh, joys... I I had somebody say this to me recently. It might have been Carol Canfield. Yeah, it was you. It was like a week or two ago. No, it was last week. It was after the choir sang. And you were just beaming. And what did Carol say? Well, Carol has spent her life in music. If you know anything about Carol and David, music is their life. But guess what? God comes before other things with them. And Carol was saying what joy it gave her to finally see mouths that were trained to produce music in this community producing the music of giving glory to God. How many times we've gone to performances in this community and known that people were singing sacred texts from centuries back 
and had absolutely no conception of the God to whose glory those texts were originally written and set to tune. And so I want to exhort you in passing, all of you who are musicians, your first and primary obligation is to lead the people of God in worship. If music is not made first for the worship of the people of God, then music has become an idol. How can we say that anything that God has given us is not first to give him glory? Now, I'm not saying that when you perform that God never receives glory. I've been to many recitals, many of which uh, in many ways gave glory to God, often very clear witnessing in the uh, notes at performances and from the platform. Well, Edwards is right. Edwards points that nature, he says, nature is constantly fulfilling her calling and perfectly praises her maker. And yet, when it comes to man, to call it an afterthought is really to exaggerate. Um, it's not even an afterthought with most of, most of God's creation through time, man. And yet, this is what we excel in. We have been made to give God rational and spiritual praise, and so often we don't do it. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And so, when we gather Sunday morning and evening as the people of God, we are setting about the work of God. We are God's servants carrying out God the foreman, God the boss of the universe's work. And this word worship is a word that was originally used to refer to the work that a citizen did for the public good at his or her own expense. For instance, uh, when you go out along the road and you see these signs that say that uh, you know Monroe County 4-H Club has cleaned up this part of the road, you know that they didn't get paid to do it except having that sign up there. And that is the worship that they give. That is their... Um, uh, unpaid uh, work for the public utility, for the public good, that they give as, as their worship, their civic worship, their civic service. And this was the root of this word worship. The word was also used to refer to the work of the priests when they carried out their priestly duties at the temple. For instance, in Luke chapter 123, we read about Simeon. And it says that Simeon, when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. And this work service, again, is the same root. In Luke chapter 3, we see this word. Those who govern and lead religious ceremonies are carrying out tasks delegated to them by God, and they are referred to as ministers to God. So uncompensated work done for the sake of the good of the commonwealth came in Greek to be called liturgia. And when we do work for God, we are engaging in liturgia. Now, I use the Greek word not to show I know Greek. I barely do anymore. Um, but I want you to hear it because now you know where the word liturgy came from. And again, people come into the church and they say, I want a more liturgical worship service. And what I hear them saying immediately is, what? <laughs> Did you not work? <laughs> what they really mean is liturgical has come to be a placeholder for worship 
where there's antiphonal singing in a very sophisticated form of ancient music and where there are responsive readings, where the prayers are written and read, where there are um, special decorations in the service, where, there's a, where everything physical as well as spiritual is done in a way to lead our attention to God. Now, I'm not criticizing that, but that's not the meaning of the word liturgical. Liturgy is simply the word we have in English that comes from the Greek word to do this kind of work, the work of worship. In fact, to get away from all these um, words that seem to have such uh, spiritual meanings, let's call uh, our worship something different. Instead of calling it a service of worship, let's call it a labor of reverence. Let's call it reverence work and we get more of an idea of what we should be doing when we gather with the people of God, at least, and also when we are engaged in private devotions and also when we have family devotions and where two or three are gathered in his name. It is reverence work, the work of reverence. Now, how many of us think of worship in this way? You can say worshiping the Lord, serving the Lord, ministering to the Lord, it's all the same thing. Let me illustrate this concept of worship by reading to you from two other passages of Scripture where the same root that's here translated worship appears. Romans 13. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for what? Rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. So speaking of political rulers, Paul writes that those who are over us in the government are God's servants. And this word servants is the same root as the word translated worship. When rulers rule, this is God work, and we could call it worship. Then 2 Corinthians 9.12, Paul is exhorting the believers in Corinth to help their brothers and sisters who are in need and he refers to their gifts, their tithes and offerings, as the what service they perform. It says, For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. So again, this word translated service is derived from the same root as worship. Now, it's critically important that we have a proper understanding of the meaning of worship at Church of the Good Shepherd. And here are some statements I want to sum up what is and isn't true of worship. Number one, worship is not play or entertainment, but it is work. You'll find yourself doing this all the time, and it's okay, but correct each other when you do it. This is not a stage. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've heard us referring to this as a stage. It's not a stage. It's a platform. Now, why do I say that? For the same reason, this is not an altar. Christ is not sacrificed here. We commemorate. And words have meanings. If David were to tell you, tell them what you always say about the cross in this church. You want me to? Well, I won't get it right. But he says that you enter the baptistry through the cross. That that's the image of the Christian church. We don't believe that. We don't believe that you enter through the... Go ahead. I'm sorry, I, I switched it. Yes, you go to Christ, you enter the cross through baptism. But we don't believe that. And so language, the physical placement of things, they all contain meaning. 
And uh, so this is not a stage. And when people lead us in worship, they're not performing. Now, it's very easy to slip back into the performance mode, and sometimes, especially when children sing, we can't help ourselves, we clap. And the worst construction you can put on that is that we're clapping to commend the children for their great performance. But I think when it's little children, what we're really doing is simply encouraging them that it was good that they led us in worship. So I sometimes clap for children, but boy, if you're an adult and you get up to lead us in worship, I will never clap for you, especially if you're at the IU School of Music. And the reason is that you're at the center of too much idolatry. There ought to be one place here on earth where you don't have to go through that. I mean, doesn't it get old? Marcus Cavalcante, some of you remember him? He's still alive. In fact, I wrote him last night. Marcus played the guitar and he played it well. And he was Brazilian, a rather exotic species. And I always used to try to get Marcos to play guitar in our worship. Marcos wouldn't. Do any of you remember why? He always said the same thing. He said, you know, Tim, he said, everybody is idolatrous about guitar players. And I don't even want to subject people to that in our worship services. So I think he played what? two or three times in the entire time he was a part of our church. Now, that's a little twisted. I used to tell Marcus that even though it can be used evilly, that does not mean that you shouldn't use it well. So, Marcus, lead us in worship, and that's what I say to you. If you have this feeling that since it's idolatrous out of the church, you'll never use it for the worship of God, I think, isn't that sad? Satan won. You know, why not come here and show us your pretty face and your pretty instrument and do it to the glory of God? Worship is not play or entertainment, but work. We don't perform. It isn't a stage. We are leading the people of God in worship, number one. Number two, worship is not focused on man, but God. And therefore, the question is not, did you like it, but did God like it? Did it honor him? Did he receive glory and praise? We do not want people to have an experience of worship here, but rather we want God to be honored and to be glorified and to be praised. This is God's house. This is God's day. And we are here to listen to the word of God and to bring him glory. Number three, worship is not an option but a duty. The command of Scripture to us and to our children isn't, listen, if you have any free time next Sunday, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Or let everything that has some discretionary time and is so inclined, praise the Lord. Or if you sense a teachable moment with your children, you might want to use it to lead family devotions, provided, of course, that the time won't cut into the front end of the Cosby show or make any late for volleyball practice. Now the third one cuts me, all right? I hope we're all cut by them. Imagine telling your foreman at work you'll carry out his instructions, provided, of course, that it fits into your schedule. I knew a man who lost his hospital privileges because he was always on the phone for his private business while he was giving the anesthetic to his patients. Well, isn't that what we do? God gets our discretionary time. And if there's a test coming up, we stay home on the Lord's Day. I mean, that's twisted. 
you know why it's twisted? Because you're made to give God praise. Because he says, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. Another reason it's twisted is you are in bondage. Imagine not having a day a week when you don't have to do work. Isn't that sad? To think of people who think they have to work seven days a week or God will not provide for them. Now, if you haven't worked six days, um, then there might be a reason why you have to work the seventh day. But then what you need to think when you're screwing off Saturday is that you've just robbed God of the Sabbath. And then it'll put a whole different spin on things, won't it? Our daughter, Heather, we have heard that Heather was one of the only kids at Taylor University who never studied on the Lord's Day. Completely Christian school. Number four, worship is not a feeling, but it's an action. There will be times when we feel dead and sad and tired while we have our daily devotions, but we're not called to feel good about them, but simply to do them. There will be times when our temper and impatience against family members will cause us to think that we should not go into church on a Sunday morning. I've had that feeling, and now my wife and I have solved it by driving separate cars to church. (laughs) But this is why we have the privilege of starting worship with prayers of confession. And if you think a prayer of confession is a bad way to start a worship service, I dare say that you're not very much in tune with the people that you live with. Because how can we come to worship sitting next to our wives and husbands and roommates without starting by confessing that we're selfish sinners? Not to mention the wicked things that we do. And so we start by getting clean. You wouldn't sit down at a table without washing your hands, I hope. Well... That's the equivalent of the call to worship and then following that, a prayer of confession. We are to do the work. Whether we feel like it or not, whether we're clean or not, we start by confessing our sins to God and then we do the work. Worship is not ultimately for our own edification, but for God's glory. The final question to ask wasn't, was I built up, challenged, strengthened, or uplifted, but was God what? Glorified. Six, worship is not an act just of the mind, soul, or heart, but of the body too. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Or another translation puts it, which is your spiritual worship. Bodies, hands, minds, hearts, knees, clapping, Lifting hands, we ought to be... Uh, American evangelicals are Gnostics. We, we always think that uh, things have to be sort of secret and sort of um, mystical. And uh, consequently, we have this dichotomy of spirit and body, and, and we milk it for everything it's worth. And especially in worship, where our bodies simply aren't involved, and we often revolt against having to stand. Well, go to the Old Testament and look at how long those people stood, many of them holding babies. And we should kneel, we should have hands lifted, we should sometimes fall on our faces, there should be tears, there should be laughter, there should be joy, there should be sorrow. We should be holistic. I mean, that word's used for everything else, holistic health center. You know, we should be holistic in our worship. 
Worship should not be for an hour a week, but for all of life. In fact, not just all of life, but what? All of eternity. Man's chief end is to glorify God. And worship should not be under the control of the pastor, but rather under the control of the Holy Spirit. Jonathan Edwards, in this sermon, he writes this. He says, Consider what a shame it is that you should live in vain when all other creatures inferior to you glorify their Creator according to their nature. You who are so highly exalted in the world are more useless than the brute creation, yea, than the meanest worms or things without life as earth and stones. For they all answer their end. None of them fail of it. They are all useful in their places, all render their proper tribute of praise to their Creator, while you are mere nuisances in the creation and burdens to the earth, as any tree of the forest is more useful than the vine, if it bear not fruit. And what is the fruit that God has called us to? The fruit is the fruit of worship. It says, All of creation is useful in its place. All render their proper tribute of praise to their Creator. How evil is it if we do not worship God? Look at Romans chapter 1 with me, please, as we conclude. Beginning with verse 18. It's very interesting. It slips on bias. We're so fixated on the specific sins that are listed here and what the significance of that is for contemporary American culture that this part of this text slips on by. Beginning with verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, For what? Since the creation of the world, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For what? Even though they knew God, what? They did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over. Isn't that something that this most sobering of texts about the judgment of God has at its center the sin what? The sin of what? The sin of of ingratitude. We don't take that seriously, you know? We don't think of the duty of giving God glory. Well, I ask you to rethink the Lord's Day, to rethink worship services, to rethink everything associated with your private devotions and times of prayer and family devotions and corporate worship on the Lord's Day. And ask yourself when it's done, did I do my work? Did the pastor do his work? Did he do it well? Did the musicians do their work well? And if they did, by the way, thank them. And you start to do your work. 
Not a worship experience, not were you uplifted, but was God glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for worship. That there are times set apart when we as a family, as individuals, but particularly as the bride of Christ, those called, those elect, those who have been given a name and a future and a hope, are able to do here on earth what we will be doing forever in heaven. Father, may we produce fruit for you, fruit that lasts. May we give you glory. May we be one with nature in the way we are supposed to be one, namely declaring the glory of God and showing your handiwork. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.